0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the events, news, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and today we're joined by Dr Jasmine Westendorf, a lecturer in international relations here at La Trobe, to talk about recent political unrest in East Timor. Jasmine's just returned from East Timor, where she's been doing research funded by La Trobe Asia Research Grant. Jasmine, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: So let's start with a bit of background East Timor gained its independence from Indonesia relatively recently. It's been a little over a decade of formal independence, but it's had a fairly rocky political history, short though it is. When it gives a quick sketch of the sort of post-independence political unrest and what sort of led to where we are today?
1: It has been a really difficult years for East Timor since the referendum for independence in 1999. In the 15 years since then, there's been quite significant political and security unrest about every four years. And some of those periods have been much worse than others, like the 2006-2007 crisis, which led to the redeployment of United Nations peacekeepers after they'd left the year earlier, having declared absolute success supporting the establishment of the new East Timor. In the last couple of years, there's been rising disenchantment with the government about a whole range of issues that go from things like the socioeconomic issues. East Timor is a very poor country. It's been ranked 70 out of 84 countries on the Global Hunger Index, which puts it on par with countries like Chad and Sudan and Eritrea. It's got one of the very highest child malnutrition rates in the world. It's got very high uh, rates of unemployment. 70% of the population is under the age of 30. Many people in the country live on less than a few dollars a day, 88% of the poor live on or rely on subsistence farming. So it's a very difficult context that East Timor finds itself in now, and then lay it on top of that issues that are residual issues from the resistance and the political cleavages that occurred during the resistance movement in the 70s and 80s, and the issues of relationships with Indonesia, building a strong economy, which up until now has relied on the oil and natural gas fields. That's accounted for approximately at 95% of national revenue in the country. So the last 15 years have seen quite a lot of improvement in some areas, and certainly there have been achievements in establishing a fairly strong political system, but there are still a lot of challenges facing the country.
0: So that's sort of almost regular cycle of political upheaval and unrest, and sometimes quite violent. Is this something that's driven largely by socioeconomic factors or by shortcomings in the political system, or, as you said, by these kind of lingering tensions between a ruling elite that's never quite papered over their divisions from days in the wilderness?
1: I'd say it's definitely the latter, All of the security challenges that have faced Timor since 2000 have been internal and a lot of them have come from conflicts between former resistance members and leaders and the way they are then bringing or forming new groups that can challenge each other and that's happened in a number of different ways. In 2006, the violence was between the police and the military who were aligned with different factions and different political groups. Now, there's been violence between different martial arts groups who are in a very shadowy way linked to certain political actors and are acting out the conflicts that are also going on in the political sphere.
0: Are they formal paramilitaries or are they just sort of spontaneous groups?
1: Spontaneous groups, definitely. They're not formal in any way and politicians won't acknowledge that they are connected to them and they certainly won't take ownership of them. But there have been some very clear links between those martial arts groups and their actions, particularly in the 2006-2007 crisis and the political actors and what they were doing and saying on the political stage.
0: So let's get to March of this year, President Janana Guzmao stepped down, prominent figure certainly in Australia, very visible leader of the resistance, and then recently political figure who stepped aside, and has been visible internationally since he stepped down, saying, come and invest in Timor, everything's going well. And yet, in your experiences whilst you were doing your research there, the government of the man to whom he's handed power, names Rui Arojo. The social circumstances on the ground seem to be anything but a place where you'd even feel safe walking the streets at night, let alone wanting to put down money as a foreign investor. So what's going on in Timor now? And is it directly linked to Sinana's departure or are these longer-running trends that are once again surfacing?
1: The situation now is really Complicated. I think it's operating across a number of levels. You definitely have the political level grievances, and certainly one of the major sources of insecurity and concern at the moment is the actions of a former resistance leader, Malk Morok, in the east in Balkar district. He and Janana Kusma had a falling out in 1984 when there were disagreements over the ideological direction of the movement and the the strategy of the resistance movement, he returned to Timor after years in exile in Holland and armed groups of men in his region and started attacks on police. That has got to the point recently in January this year where the attacks were really scaring people in Dili, partly because they were quite severe. There was an incident in mid-January where he attacked a police post, kidnapped a couple of police. There was use of Molotov cocktails in the aftermath of that, the government shut down a lot of roads. They imposed a curfew in Dili. There were a number of other incidents that then came later, including attacking more recently the residence of the president of the national parliament in Baokau district. So, this is definitely an issue that is reminiscent of past conflicts, but it's been made all the more difficult by the real sense of insecurity in Timor more generally, in the sense from civilians that when things go wrong, they go wrong very quickly, and it can be very hard to predict how groups are going to react to each other. So when I was in Dili in January, I found it really interesting that the media, the international community, the government were all playing down the risk of this violence, the security risk that Mark Morrock's group And they were saying it's just a criminal issue, nothing to be concerned of. We have the situation completely under control. And when I spoke to regular Timorese, they would say, We've got our bags packed, we're not sleeping well at night. We're really concerned that this could actually escalate very quickly. And I think part of that is because there is actually quite a lot of violence in Timor, which is something that's definitely been papered over by both the government and the international community in their responses. In Timor, people would talk to me, NGOs and, and UN agencies and so on would talk to me about how this was now a development context. Conflict was no longer a real issue in Timor. But there are incredibly high rates of sexual and gender-based violence. There are very high rates of violence against children in preschools and schools that are starting to be addressed. There's a sense that violence is a very easy response to any conflict. There are martial arts groups that are still active. When I was in Dili, there was a grenade attack on the US embassy. There was an arrow attack on a civilian, which is linked to ritual or witchcraft violence. And there was also an attack which seemed random against a woman in the street who was kidnapped in a taxi and held at knife point and assaulted. So there is quite a lot going on just under the surface, which I think makes it very easy for those more higher level political conflicts to shake the confidence of regular people in the peace that's existing at the moment.
0: So you've got a society that's very kind of on edge in general and has been for a period of time and then on top of that you've got this big political fault Mm. line. When you say that people have got their bags packed and they're concerned, are they concerned of large-scale sort of civil insurrection? Are they concerned that just law and order as they know it will collapse or is it we just don't know what's going to happen and so there's a level of tension there?
1: What has happened in the past, which I think is the reference point for a lot of those civilians, is that when there has been large-scale political instability. So, for instance, in the 2006 crisis, when the police and military were fighting, there was such instability that surrounded that that it created a space for a lot of other violence, old grievances that re-emerged, communal violence that re-emerged, people who were from the east pushing out people from the west from their villages or their communities in Dili and vice versa. So I think that part of the fear is that if there's not a solid political compact around security... It makes everyone very vulnerable because communal violence has sprung up so quickly in the past. And that's not necessarily completely political or associated with those political conflicts between, in this case, Janana Gusma and Mark Morok. It's associated with a whole lot of other issues.
0: You know, I guess if you go back to the late 90s and then the referendum in 99, that was a fairly violent period. It's nearly 20 years mm. of, of this. So, so why is it that we're not getting much reporting about this? You know, East Timor for a long period of time has been crawling with international media, NGOs development agencies, the UN. And yet now, the kinds of things they're talking about, I mean, a grenade attack on the US embassy, this should be news. We don't hear anything about this. Why do you think that that is? I think there's
1: a couple of factors that contribute to that. And one of them is around the media presence. And I think partly that's because of the cuts to the media that have happened in Australia. There aren't foreign correspondents based in the region who are deeply in touch with what's going on. I think that's certainly a part of it. But I think probably greater reasons are that It's not necessarily in the interests of either the Timorese government or the international community to talk about these problems. Certainly the government's response has been to brush them aside in the past. In this case at the moment, they've repeatedly said this is just criminal violence, we have a police force to deal with it, we're not going to accept it as anything but criminal. I think that's very problematic given the claims that are being made and the demands that are being made are very much political and there are long political routes to this issue. So
0: what are those demands that are being made?
1: Mark Morrock's called for a number of things, including dissolution of the government, the cancellation of the 2002 constitution. He's called in the past for the establishment of an interim government that he would lead up until elections. And a bigger claim, which I think is actually really interesting, is that he's called for an anti-poverty revolution, which is speaking to the experiences of a lot of Timorese, particularly in that region where he is based, around Balka where there is still extreme poverty, and where they haven't necessarily felt the benefits of the aid that has been in more easily reached areas. So I think part of why that's not being reported is because the government isn't willing to acknowledge that these issues still exist. The government's been very reluctant to accept things like child malnutrition statistics, which they've said, no, it's not right. Our children aren't hungry. They don't look like the children in Africa. They're not starving. They don't have big bellies. The fact is that nutrition is much more than hunger and that children aren't able to access the foods that give them the the required nutrition to actually develop properly. But the government's response has been to very much push that away. And I think this is all tied together in why they're not reporting what's going on.
0: Yeah. So the children are getting enough calories. They're not getting what they need to grow and to develop. Yeah. Yeah. So is there an international flavouring to all of this? Because on the one hand you might say that there's a small poor country that's got some governance and security issues and isn't a tragedy but there are big difficulties afoot, or is there cross currents of international interests that are at play that are also influencing the dynamics of this?
1: I think from the position of the international community, so the United Nations and the organizations that sort of surrounded them in the peacekeeping response and then the peace building process, the UN withdrew a couple of years ago, again declaring that this was much more successful than the last attempt that they made at supporting peace in East Timor and declaring that the conflict phase is over and that now what Timor needs is development support from the UN and other organisations and donor countries. So I think that's probably influencing some of the language or the discussion around the conflict issues at the moment. But from the government in terms of other actors, There are negotiations going on around the oil and gas fields. That's a big concern for Timor. Janana, after he stepped down from the Prime Minister's role, has stepped into a new role which has been created to him as a super minister for strategic planning and development, which is specifically to attract investment from overseas countries. And so they're very much pushing the message to the international community that Timor is a country that is developing. It has a strong government. And I think the political transition demonstrates that there is actually quite a strong political compact at the moment. It didn't result in the sort of instability or upheaval that it could have. It was managed very well. The opposition and the government are working very closely under this government of national unity, and so they are projecting a message of stability for the international community to invest. One of the problems, or one of the risks, is that there isn't actually much oil and gas left. Analysts have estimated that it'll run out within the next 10 years. And that Timor really needs to focus on how they're going to capture that wealth in the fund that's been set up in a way that can actually support the country in the years to come rather than end up in a similar situation to Nauru. While I was there, I was really interested to hear how many conspiracy theories were being thrown around by people about who else was involved in this instability or who else was involved in the oil and gas negotiations. I haven't seen much to substantiate any of them, but. The majority of people that I just spoke to, you know, in taxis or in the street would raise that as a serious concern that they had. Where are the guns coming from? Where's the money coming from? What does this actually mean? And what are the suspicious interests that are driving the way America or Australia or other countries are interacting with Timor at the moment?
0: So it's the idea that there's a puppet master out there or a range of exactly. puppet masters. Where does this end? I mean, we've got a guy who's obviously got some kind of military capacity there Mm. however limited it might be who's got a pretty serious set of ambitions you know overturn the constitution interim government with himself in charge and a populist left revolutionary program does he get quietly snuffed out does he get bought off does he succeed or is timor going to be sort of locked into this periods of peace come and development and then civil unrest and a sort of governance wobble
1: I think that until some of those really fundamental socioeconomic problems are addressed, it's a country that is very, where it's very easy to foster that sort of violent unrest. It's very easy to get veterans groups to protest or to use violence. And veterans groups is something we haven't talked about yet, but they're an actor that has demanded an enormous amount of funding from the government in the past because of the role that they played in getting independence for East Timor, nearly 10% of the actual national spending each year goes on basically cash handouts to ex-veterans. It's essentially a way of buying the peace. Now, there's a big question at the moment of what's going to happen because that's not sustainable in terms of expenditure. It's nearly $110 million per year. In the next year or two, the military is going to have to find a way of retiring a whole lot of ex-resistance fighters who are in the military. They're over 55, which is the nominated retirement age, And they're making even more demands than the previous veterans about what they expect when they retire. So this is quite a significant potential source of instability if those political issues aren't resolved, because it's a group that's very easily manipulated or activated Mm. by their political colleagues. I think in terms of Mark Moruk, the government strategy up until this point has been to mobilize the police and the military. That may work although it's important to recognise that he's hiding in the area that the resistance leaders hid from the Indonesian occupation and he's very good at hiding in that area and it's very difficult terrain. The government actually came out last week saying one of the major challenges is that he's being hidden by the community, which indicates that there is actually community support in that area for the claims that he's making. So even if he was captured, I don't think that would necessarily do away with the political issues that he's speaking to or the disenfranchisement that people from those areas feel about the current government. I think one of the big challenges is going to be for the new Prime Minister to find a way of addressing all of these issues, making sure socioeconomic development reaches those far corners of Timor and finding a way of balancing or counterbalancing the veterans groups or the martial arts groups who have the potential to keep destabilising the situation.
0: Thanks, Jasmine. That's all we've got time for. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like, you can follow Jasmine on Twitter at JasmineKimW, that's J-A-S-M-I-N-E-K-I-M-W, or me at Nick Bisley. And if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks for listening.